Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal worship service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our call to confession this morning is from Proverbs 23, verses 24 and 25. The father of the righteous will greatly rejoice, and he who begets a wise child will delight in him. Let your father and your mother be glad, and let her who bore you rejoice. Life can be painful sometimes. Giving birth hurts. As an obstetrician, I can attest to this fact. On a weekly basis, I see firsthand that it hurts. But you don't have to take my word for it. There are many in this room who can verify that bearing children is one of the most painful things that a woman will endure in her lifetime. Raising children also hurts. Again, as a father of eight, I can faithfully attest to that fact. But there are also many in this room who will confirm it as well. Feeding, clothing, bathing, teaching, correcting, and training children is hard work. It requires much personal sacrifice. It is exhausting and at times can seem endless. However, there exists a hurt that exceeds even the pain of childbirth and the agonies of child raising. It is the emotional anguish that comes from a child who grows up to be wayward and rebellious. The proverb this morning says that the father of the righteous will rejoice, and he who begets a wise child will delight in him. But God's word teaches us that the opposite is true. Proverbs 10.1 says, A foolish son is the grief of his mother. Proverbs 17.21, He who begets a scoffer does so to his sorrow, and the father of a fool has no joy. Lastly, Proverbs 19.13, A foolish son is the ruin of his father. Why is this true? Why does it matter how our children turn out? The answer may seem obvious, but let us consider it for a moment. First, we are mortal beings. We have only one life on this earth, and in the backdrop of eternity, it's just a breath. But children are an extension of our lives. They are the opportunity that God gives for us to reach into and affect the future. Second, our children represent us. They are the fruit of our labor. Who and what they become are a display of our work. Lastly, every child is an eternal being. The choices that they make will affect the eternal destination of their souls. God, of course, is sovereign over their choices, and yet our parenting and his design plays a vital role. Children and young adults of Christ Church, understand that the choices you make and what you become is a matter of great importance to your parents and even greater significance to your souls. If you rebel, if you despise your parents' instructions and reject the faith, if you choose a life of foolishness and wickedness, then you will bring shame and anguish to your parents and ultimately eternal condemnation for yourself. God has commanded you to honor your parents. If you have not been honoring and obeying them, then repent of it. He will forgive you. Honor your parents, obey them, and listen to their instruction, and continue to do so even in your adult years. If you do, you will be blessed and they will have joy. Parents of Christ Church, 
If the way our children turn out matters to us, and it should, if we desire joy and peace in our latter years, then let us be diligent in teaching and training them. Let us not assume that because they are baptized, homeschooled, classically educated, or participate in worship, that they're guaranteed to turn out well. All these things are good, but they're not enough. We must teach them God's ways, and we should start when they are young. We must take the time to know them and pray for them, discipline them, read the Bible to them, teach them the gospel, and labor for their souls. We should also be delighting in our children. Let them even now in their youth bring us joy. It is too easy sometimes and too dangerous for us to only focus on their misdeeds and disobedience. But the fruit of the Spirit can be seen even in our little ones. Point out the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives and rejoice with them over God's grace toward them. Lastly, let us remember that we all are children of God. We are the bearers of his image, and we represent him here on this earth. How we live matters to him as well. Our disobedience, I'm sorry, our obedience and deeds of love are a delight to him. But when we sin, we are rebelling against him and misrepresenting our good and perfect father. But when we sin, we have one who intercedes for us, the firstborn of many brethren, in whom we have forgiveness of our sins, and therefore the eternal delight of the Father. So if you are willing and able, please kneel as we confess our sins to God. So today we continue our study in the Sermon on the Mount. And we are in the section where Jesus is instructing us about how the standards of the kingdom of heaven supersede the received teachings from the scribes and Pharisees. Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes on and gives us several examples of what he means by that. And that's the section that we're in so, still today. So, so far we've seen how Jesus equated the commandment against murder with anger, a heart sin, being angry unjustly in your heart. And then two weeks ago we looked at how just looking at a woman to lust after her indicates that you are already guilty of adultery in your heart. You, you've directed your eyes that way, and using the tools that God gives you, the, 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 your eyes, that way shows the ugliness, the sin in your heart. And it's not that anybody outside of you in your own mind even knows about it. Jesus is, again, Jesus is saying, is saying that the kingdom of heaven's standard of holiness supersedes the externals. It supersedes the interpretation of the scribes and the Pharisees about what the law meant. Our text today continues to interact with the seventh commandment. So we, 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 we compared adultery to lust. The second issue that Jesus deals with in adultery is divorce. 
So if lust is tantamount to adultery, the next thing we're going to find out is that divorce causes adultery. Now, the principle starts with the traditional instruction on divorce. Verse 31. Matthew 5, verse 31. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. That was the teaching of the day. And it doesn't ascribe any guilt. It just says, if you're going to divorce, you have to follow the right guidelines. You have to do it this way. The verb uh, to divorce is, is the, the Greek word apoleo, which means to put out or send away. The Hebrew word is shalak, which also means to put out or send away. The, the, the action of divorce is a separation, sending apart, sending away. The noun, the certificate of divorce, that noun is, is the Greek word is apostasio, which means a certificate or a written statement of divorce. It's very specific. And it's a covenantal dissolution. And the, the Hebrew word for that is uh, katuti. But, this uh, is a funny word, but katuti. But that word comes from the Hebrew root word for to cut. And, it, and so it has the connotation of cutting off a marriage. Now, interestingly enough, the Hebrew root word for creating a covenant is to cut a covenant also, because a covenant required spilled blood. The covenant, so when God creates a covenant with Abraham, he splits the animals and the blood is spilled. Well, when God, when, when men break marriage vows, they're tearing asunder what is one. And we're going to get into that in a bit. But we're still talking about the traditional interpretation. The history here is, is um, Jesus is referring to the teachings of the Jews in, 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 uh, regarding the law in relation to divorce. And in the, in the law, Moses permitted divorce in the book of Deuteronomy, but not as a positive commandment. He didn't say, thou shalt divorce. He said, uh, he, in fact, he permitted it obliquely, or from the side, you could say. Um, he, he did it in, in, a, in two ways. First, the first way is, is as limitations on divorce. So instead of saying, thou shalt divorce, he said, in certain cases, in certain cases, for instance, if a man had falsely accused his bride of infidelity or of uncleanness, or if he had stolen her virginity, in those kind of cases, divorce was not permitted for life. It was, he was not, never allowed to divorce her for, for, all, for the rest of his life. So he limits divorce that way. So in, in those cases, it's not possible. To, to, to legally divorce. And this law protected the innocent and the weak so that the bride would have security and provision for life. The other oblique reference or inference of permission was as clarification of what would re be required in the instance of divorce. So, so Moses says uh, that where divorce has taken place, 
the couple couldn't come back together if she had remarried in the interim. So he gives guidelines for in, in the instance when divorce happens, for the sake of holiness, if she had remarried, they are not allowed to come back together. And the purpose of that law was to protect the sanctity of marriage, property rights, and a form of legalized prostitution, if you think of it that way. It's, it's, it's evil for a man to be married to a woman, to be one flesh with her, and then to let her go, to give her a certificate, send her out, give her a certificate of divorce, and have her come back to him. Um, it, would, it was uh, a defilement of the land, is what God called it. Among the Jews of the first century, there was an ongoing debate between the two schools of thought among their theologians. The text of Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, reads this way. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house. So he says, when this happens... And then he goes on to say, that's the, the, the last example that I gave, that he goes on to say, then he's not, and she gets remarried, then he's not allowed to remarry her again. But he's, he's re referring to divorce. He says, when this happens, when he, when he just doesn't lose his favor, and she loses favor in his eyes, and he sets her apart, he sends her away. Um, the issue between the two schools of thought in, among the Hebrew theologians was, in how broadly or how narrowly do, do you interpret the fairly ambiguous term, some uncleanness in her. So one school, it was uh, named after the rabbi Shammai. It had a high standard for divorce. It, he interpreted Moses as limiting the justification for divorce to fornication or sexual impurity of some sort. But the other school, that of Rabbi Hillel, they permitted divorce for any reason that a wife might displease her husband. Any reason, right? Even if she just burnt dinner, or he just found somebody else he was more attracted to. But in this divided context, a person in the first century is Israel, the, the, who's living among the Israelites that Jesus was ministering to, if he wanted to get a divorce, he, he could. He could. He could find a way to jump through the loopholes to get a legal divorce. And there was agreement that if a certificate of divorce was supplied, it was sufficient to legally accomplish the divorce. It was a legal transaction, a covenant transaction. And it would free up the divorced man to remarry, and it would escape the charge of adultery. The, the literal charge of adultery, because they're divorced. Now they can remarry. However, Jesus responds to that line of thinking by saying, making it legal doesn't make it holy. It doesn't get rid of the sin. Verse 32. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. So they said, 
If you divorce, you're divorced. Jesus says, if you divorce for any reason that's not biblically justifiable according to God, then you are guilty of the seventh commandment. So Jesus is redefining the seventh commandment for the first century Jews. Because that commandment is meant to protect and honor the marriage bed. And according to Jesus, a certificate of divorce on the basis of anything less than sexual immorality is a legal smokescreen for adultery. It's abracadabra, magic. Look, this isn't what it is, but it is. Jesus is saying it is exactly what it is. It's adultery. And so in the kingdom of heaven, no matter how orderly the paperwork is, the paperwork of men is, the external paperwork is, God judges our hearts. His standard is absolute holiness. And Jesus is addressing a singular position here, that of husbands who divorce their wives. And what Jesus says is that the husband causes her to commit adultery. Causes her to commit adultery. So in, in the first century, a woman needed the protection and the provision of a husband. It, it wasn't a culture where women were very well provided for on their own. And so he's saying the guilt for the adultery falls on the husband who divorces his wife unjustly. He puts the burden of the cause on the husband. Because that poor woman is stuck in a hard place. And sometimes that means being forced to choose between the lesser of two evils. So she remarries because she needs to live. But she's committing adultery. It's, a, it's an evil, but it's the lesser of two evils. And Jesus assumes that she's remarrying here. He says, if you divorce her for no reason like this, you're causing her to commit adultery. Jesus does give us an exception. He, get, he says there's, there is a righteous, justifi justifiable cause for fornication. Jesus includes this exception. The word is porneia. And it means any sort of sexual uncleanness or immorality. And it is broader than simply uh, illicit affairs. But the point is there that if she's already guilty of adultery, then he cannot cause her to become guilty of adultery. And he's justified in putting her away. He's not, he is not guilty of adultery, and, and that is just grounds for divorce. Now Jesus elaborates on divorce more fully in Matthew 19, verses 3 through 12. I'm going to read through that passage real quick, and we'll talk about it in a second. And this is when the Pharisees were coming to attack him, to test him. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him, and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? They knew this was a sticky question. That's why they're testing Jesus. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, 
For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? And Jesus said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced, commits adultery. His disciples said to him, If such is the case of the man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, all cannot accept this thing, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He who is able to accept it, let him accept it. So in this passage, we really get to the heart of the issue. Marriage is a creation ordinance. God created us, male and female, to be married to one another. This means that it is the standard thing for men and women to come together in marriage, and when they do that, they become one flesh. One flesh. And because this is the way that God made the world, the way that we are formed, and God said that it was very good, because this is the case, Jesus' conclusion is extremely straightforward as, as it comes to divorce. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. So the Pharisees ask, is it lawful for the Pharisees... But for, for, a, for a man to divorce his wife for any reason. Jesus says it's not lawful for a man to divorce his wife. And then the Pharisees retort, but Moses, but Moses. They always go back to Moses and their interpretation of him. But Jesus quickly counters with the clarification of Moses dealing with realities. Moses is giving a law to a people that have hard hearts. They have, these people have hard hearts, and so because of their hard hearts, divorce is just a reality of, of life in this world because of sin. So when Moses gives us clarification about how divorce has to happen when it does happen, he's showing us what holiness is and what righteousness is in a fallen world. But from the beginning, it was not so. God didn't make us for that. And then he reiterates what our passage today says. Now interestingly, it's Jesus' disciples who react strongly to Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. They say, when Jesus says, you know, divorce is tantamount to uh, breaking the seventh commandment. It's adultery. And they say, if that's the case, it's better for a guy to be alone than stuck with the same woman. That's what they say. Jesus' disciples say this. 
And then Jesus responds, basically saying, holiness isn't easy. Holiness is not easy. They say it's better to be a eunuch. That's what the disciples are saying. Jesus says, well, that's only a gift for some. There's two choices for holiness when it comes to the seventh commandment. Faithful celibacy or faithful marriage. That's it. And it's not easy. It requires faith and fidelity. The sum of the teaching here is that marriage joins two individuals together into one flesh. And this is an act of God. God does it. God puts two individuals together. God ordains times and circumstances. We are born on the day that we are born. We live in, in the fellowship of the community that we are placed in. We meet the person that we marry in God's good time. And when we get married, then we know who the one is. That's when you know. When you say, I do, now you know. She's the one. You married her. Or he's the one. You married him. And if we're going to submit to God's word, we're going to refuse the idolatry and the ugliness and the sin of divorce, then we know. The Bible says much more about divorce than just these two passages. In Malachi 2, we find that God hates divorce. And I'm going to read the whole passage in context. Malachi 2, verse, starting at verse 13. I'm not reading the whole chapter or anything like that. Um, but verses, Malachi 2, verses 13 to 16 is a unit. And this is what we read. And this is the second thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying, so he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. Yet you say, for what reason? Okay, this is, this is the context. God's not blessing your offerings. And you say, why? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce, for it covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. God hates the violence and destruction of divorce. He hates the lie that it says about marriage, and he hates the pain and suffering it inflicts on women and children. Our God is the God who avenges the widow and the orphan. 
Divorce creates widows and orphans. Paul also prohibits divorce in 1 Corinthians 7. He says, Now to the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord. A wife is not to depart from her husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. The scriptures are pretty clear. God hates divorce. In the New Testament and in the Old Testament. But that said, God also knows the hardness of men's hearts. And he permits divorce. He permits divorce in cases of unfaithfulness. We read in Matthew 1, verse 11, that Joseph was considered righteous when he sought to set Mary apart, just to put Mary away, quietly. He was considered righteous for doing that because of her pregnancy, which he knew that he had nothing to do with. He was considered righteous for that kind of divorce. Also in 1 Corinthians 7, God, I mean, Paul gives justifications for divorce. He says if you're married to an unbeliever who's unwilling to remain with you, you're not bound. You may divorce. You don't have the, the ability or the power to, to constrain them to remain. God makes provision for us to live in a fallen world. And God himself even practiced divorce. He divorced himself from Israel and Judah because of their immorality and their spiritual adultery. So how can this be? How does a God who hates divorce practice it? How does a God who clearly tells us that we are not to divorce then give us permission to divorce? This can be because love is the fulfillment of the law. We live in a broken world with death and suffering because of sin. And sometimes, because of our hard hearts, divorce is necessary. But God avenges the weak and the righteous and the innocent. For the, the innocent and the righteous... We may participate in divorce for the sake of love and peace. If God puts us in a scenario where that's, that's the only option that's left to us, in one of these clearly defined situations, you are not committing a sin by divorcing. Though it takes a lot of wisdom to, to navigate those waters. So now we come to application. The first application is this. Legalizing sin does not sanctify it. Just writing a law that says it is so does not make it so. God is the one who defines what sin is. And, and today we are speaking specifically about the seventh commandment, adultery or the holiness of the marriage bed. That's what the seventh commandment is all about. So we are speaking about marriage and sex. And the obvious application here is what Jesus said. 
you are still guilty of adultery even if you've rubber-stamped the documents, even if you've filed at the courthouse, unless you are in one of these specific situations where God gives permission for divorce. You've broken the seventh commandment. On top of this, we live in a culture that is happy to minimize the cultural consequences of sin. In modern-day America, well, and in modern-day Europe, for that matter, and in modern-day a lot of places, the cultural consequences for adultery are minimized. So that straight-up adultery is even now hardly prosecuted. Clearly, clear cases, caught in the act type thing. There's, there's no consequences, culturally. No legal ramifications. Mind your own business. That's what we're told. Moreover, in this culture that minimizes cultural consequences of sin, we have we um, we live in a culture that that is has a divorce rate that's through the roof. Infidelity in marriage is everywhere, both in the church and out of the church. The divorce rate in those in, the, in, in among those who call themselves Christians who attend church have an equivalent divorce rate with the world. Add to that the desecration of morality in our media and entertainment. We live in a culture that has started to call evil good and good evil. That's what our culture does. Remember we read about this in 1 Peter this morning. So you will be persecuted because you don't do that. But you are blessed. That's okay. But our culture does. It does it so much so that if you stand up and call sin, sin, especially sexual sin, you paint a big red target on your back. If you defend biblical marriage, or godly masculinity and femininity, or if you define adultery and wickedness, clearly and articulately you will be attacked by the homosexuals by the liberals and by those who mock God's law and they mock God they will come out in force to tear you down and sadly the loudest and most vitriolic of the ones who attack will be the ones who call themselves Christians The church has led the way in this gross and heinous sin. Now notice how I said earlier that our culture is happy to minimize the cultural consequences of sin. Our culture will not pursue those who violate God's law. Our state does not, it, it's bearing the sword in vain because it's refusing to exercise it. But because our, though our culture refuses to exercise the cultural consequences of sin, 
It, this has no effect on the actual consequences of sin. Sin is its own consequence. The broken homes, the divorce rate, the scarred hearts, the moral deterioration, deterioration, and the corresponding devastated lives of the people in our nation are clear examples of the consequences of this sin. We have children who grow up without dads. We have women who are trying to, to provide for themselves and their children on their own. We have widows and orphans because of our refusal to confess and repent of our corporate sin. We live in the middle of mass judgment because we have refused to repent of our sin and to turn to God in faith and obedience. And this has to stop. Because Jesus is King. This has to stop because Jesus is Lord of heaven and earth. He is telling us about the threshold, about how to get into the kingdom of heaven. The morality of the Sermon on the Mount is a new way. So we must be salt and light. We must stand strong and speak truth. No matter what the consequences. And what that means, being salt and light means being faithful in marriage. It means sexual purity. And I'm not going to belabor this point for two reasons. First, we covered it in depth two weeks ago. And second, it's obvious. Be sexually pure. Guard your hearts. Guard your eyes. Guard your hands. Flee sexual immorality. That's straightforward. Steer clear of adultery, both literal and the rubber stamped kind. And that brings us to contractual fidelity. Let not divorce be named among us. We are the people of God. We are His chosen ones. God has given us peace with Himself so that we might love our neighbor. And love brings peace. The reality of divorce is a reality of hard hearts, and we shouldn't have those. So unless you're married to an unbeliever, then you really have no excuse for divorce. And there you only have it if he doesn't want to live with you, or she doesn't want to live with you any longer. In all of our relationships, we're supposed to bear witness of Christ. Our text next week flows naturally to oaths. To go from divorce to oaths makes total sense. Because our words should have meaning and we should honor them. What this means here is that we said, till death do us part. Well, that should mean, till death do us part. And another side note or corollary of this is that words are powerful, and that means we should be wise in what words we use and how we use them. Which means, in the midst of a fight, 
in your marriage for Christians, as tempting as it may be and as offended as you are and as frustrated as you are, it should never be acceptable to throw out the D word as a threat or as a weapon to hurt your spouse. Because divorce is ugly and God hates it. It's not an option for Christians. Not to be used as a threat or a weapon. God hates divorce. But what God loves is his children. Which you are. You are God's children. He loves you. And if you are blessed, you are the parents of His children. So portray for your children what God's love is like in your marriage. Give them the security of faithful marriage. To know what that is and what it looks like. Show them the fruitfulness of fidelity. Instruct your children in wisdom and grace and humility and mutual submission and self-sacrifice in following Jesus Christ. If you love me, keep my commandments. And God can bless you so that you may be the grandparents and great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents, etc., of many generations of godly awesome. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Speaking of one flesh, the marriage is a picture of Christ and his bride, the church. And we are united to Christ in covenant, which is signed and sealed for us in the sacraments. As we come to this table to participate in the Lord's Supper, we come to Jesus Christ. He shares himself with us by faith and by the power of his Holy Spirit and in the partaking of bread and wine. We Though many are united into one body, as it is one loaf, we are joined together with the church through all the ages and for all eternity. We are given assurance that the blood Christ spilled on the cross was spilled for us, and the suffering he bore in his body he bore on our behalf, so that we now stand clean and holy, pure before God, righteous and atoned for, prepared to thank Him, to worship Him, and to bear witness of Him and His work to the ends of the earth. We are joined to Him, and what God has joined together, man cannot tear asunder. This table is for all who are baptized and under the authority of Christ and His body of the church. When we eat this bread and we drink this wine, we bear witness of God and His work. And we acknowledge that we are sinners without hope except in God's sovereign mercy and that we trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Christ's body broken for us. Let us pray.
Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.